listen, um, I bring greetings from our church. As Micah said, uh, Coromdale Bible Church in Davenport, Iowa. God has uh, so graciously blessed Becky and I. We've had a front row seat to see and experience a work of God that uh, is just really extraordinary and uh, feel so privileged to be a part uh, of that. Thankful that I spent a few days with some of your men as well in the men's retreat. I'm here with uh, my wife, Becky. Uh, this is a picture of our family. It's a somewhat dated picture because it was last summer. I say dated because there are only five grandsons in that picture. One of them was in utero at the time. And uh, so we now have six grandsons, an emphasis on sons, um, because not a single granddaughter yet. They haven't figured that out. We've told them the first one to give us a granddaughter gets our inheritance. And that hasn't done any good either. But there's a seventh uh, grandchild on the way, and, and they're waiting until the kid is born to figure out whether it's a boy or a girl, and we're like, whatever. Uh, that just means that Becky buys two sets of clothes. I'm only partially kidding about this. She buys girl clothes and she buys boy clothes. So that just means we float money to some of the stores in our area, you know, for a while until she ends up returning those things. God is good, and uh, I'm incredibly blessed with a beautiful wife and partner in ministry in all of this. Let's turn in our Bibles, shall we, and continue to worship Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20 is our text this morning. And I'm eager to work through it with you. You see, one of the reasons for the book of Revelation is perseverance. Uh, most of the time, uh, people hear the book of Revelation, or you turn to the book of Revelation, you hear a pastor do that, which is less and less these days. Uh, fewer and fewer people just preach on it. They're afraid, uh, A, intimidated by the book. I certainly was. Um, B, they are afraid that people are going to disagree with their, their end times view and they're going to leave the church and whatever, and unfortunately people do that, just all kinds of dumb things. But it is such a, such a rich book. And one of the primary themes, in fact, I believe the primary theme of the book of Revelation is perseverance, holding fast. It was written that we might hold fast until Jesus comes. And I'm not just making that up out of the thin blue air. That is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 25, where Jesus says... Hold fast until I come. And then you find that theme repeated several other times throughout the book as well. It was written and preserved so that we might persevere in our walk, in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus Christ until the end, and so doing prove that we were indeed believers at the beginning. In addition to that, in fact, that wouldn't mean anything, hold fast, until I come, Jesus' words. Wouldn't mean anything if the book of Revelation wasn't about Jesus as well. And it certainly is about his attributes, his coming, his judgment, his victory, and a whole litany of other things. It's Jesus first, Jesus last, Jesus always in this book. And this passage is no different, praise the Lord. It's all about what we can and should expect with Jesus. And not just later when He returns, but even right now, among us, with us, in us. What to expect in your walk with Him. What to expect in His presence. And why? What to expect with Jesus. You follow along, starting in verse 9. We'll take it a few verses at a time. I, John, that's the Apostle John, 
your brother and partner, brother and partner because he's writing to the church of his day, by extension, our church, your church, the church. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, that is, in a relationship with him. I, John, he says, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The island of Patmos, you need to know, was the Alcatraz of their day, the Roman Empire, where they sent the worst of the worst to die an absentee death apart from everybody, pretty much solitary on just a small rocky outcropping there in the middle of the Aegean Sea. John was there for his preaching. Imagine it. His proclamation, as it says, of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His proclamation of the Gospel and the Jesus of the Gospel. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is, under the Spirit's, the Holy Spirit's influence. In his case, a state of mind where he saw visions and heard sounds. I trust that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you came in here under the Holy Spirit's influence, in the Spirit. And that if you didn't walk in that way, as a result of our time of worship these last few minutes, you are in the Spirit. And that is, you are under His influence. You are under His control, inside and out. You are thinking His thoughts with Him, even as I speak. I trust that in the Spirit, the Lord is taking my words and will take my words, and He will use them and impress them on your hearts uniquely and individually as each and every one of you needs in your particular situation right now. I trust that in the Spirit. In John's case, he had a heightened sense of that where he saw visions and heard sounds. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I practiced those beforehand. Those are the seven churches of what in that day was referred to as the area of Asia, what we speak of as Asia Minor in our day. You can see that they're highlighted here in the brown, the tan, Pergama, Thyatira, Sardis, and so on. You can see Patmos, a little bitty island just off the coast of Asia Minor. You can see other cities around them with a whole bunch of countryside around all of that. In the first century, Asia Minor was a Roman province. And the churches listed here are both representative and strategic. Representative of all churches, including yours, including ours back in Davenport, Iowa. Representative of all churches, these churches are, and strategic because they were distribution centers for the seven postal districts of Asia Minor in that day. Like these were the hubs through which everything ran in terms of mail and writing and whatever, and from which all of it went out to the countryside. 
they were representative, and they were strategic. Reminding us, among other things, that Revelation is written to real people at a real time, just like us. Just like us. And the first thing that John tells us here is that with Jesus, we should expect difficulty. With Jesus, expect difficulty. I'm going to guess that's not a point or a message you've heard much about recently, if at all, in the course of your life. But I hope to show you in these next few minutes that it is a, not only a message here of Revelation, but it's a message of the entire Bible is certainly the New Testament as followers of Christ we are. With Jesus, we ought to expect adversity. We ought to expect obstacles. We ought to expect trouble in our lives. Look at verse 9 again. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, A, and the kingdom, B, and the patient endurance, C, that are in Jesus. Tribulation, kingdom work, and patient endurance go hand in hand with a relationship with Jesus. They're all a part of being in Christ. A part of being connected to Jesus. A part of being in union with Him. Whenever you see in the New Testament those two words together, in Christ, it means in union with Him. Somebody once asked me, like, where do you get this whole thing that Christianity is a relationship? Where, where, where do you get that? get that? I said, these two words, in Christ, because it means in union with Him, and that implies a relationship that is closer than a brother, a relationship that is closer than a sister, a relationship that is closer than anyone else on the face of the earth, because He is in us and we are in Him. And in Him comes difficulty. These three phrases here, A, B, and C, imply difficulty. Difficulty in tribulation because it's bad. By definition, tribulation. Difficulty in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, because it's opposed. Opposed on two fronts. Opposed, A, by Satan and his minions, and B, by the world. The world around us who doesn't believe, who looks at us as, and we smell to them as the aroma of death. Like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to some, to those of life, those who are being saved, we are the aroma of life. To those who are perishing, he says, we are the aroma of death. And that brings opposition Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but opposition. So there's difficulty from tribulation, there's difficulty from the kingdom of God in our life with Christ and in Christ, and there's difficulty because of patient endurance, holding fast until He comes. Endurance is hard enough, is it not? When we go through hardships in life and, and, and rough patches in our relationships and workplaces and all of the rest, not to mention the natural disasters and the breakdown of cars. This was breakdown week in our house for appliances. We replaced three appliances in one week. How does that work? I'll tell you, they, they, they make them to be obsolete in a shorter amount of time these days. 
that, that was for free. <laughs> endurance is hard enough in our walk with Christ. Patient endurance. Like, come on. Come on, Lord. Patient endurance. Walking with Jesus involves difficulty. There's no getting around it. You're thinking, well, wait a second, wait a second. Like, this is revelation. It's a little bit cryptic here. Are you, are you sure about this? Sure. If someone told you that salvation means a life of bliss, or that's what you expected when you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you were wrong and they were deceptive. Because the truth is, trials and tribulations are part and parcel of the Christian life. That's one of the reasons that the phrase prosperity gospel makes me grind my teeth and grieves the Holy Spirit. I have a hard time even saying those two words together, prosperity gospel. You know, it's the, the thinking that just give your life to Jesus and all your problems will go away, including your financial ones. Three appliances in one week. The prosperity gospel is garbage. It is not a gospel. It is certainly not the biblical gospel. Because Jesus said, among other things, in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. He was speaking to his disciples. In, not just the twelve, but all the disciples following him. In the world you will have tribulation. Will have. And 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Many, many. In James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. And last but not least, Philippians 1.29, and it's not the last, there are more. There are more, there are many more. I have, I have a margin in my Bible next to Philippians 1.29 with the Scriptures, and I just continue to add to it evidence that we should expect difficulty with Christ. It has been granted to you, gifted to you, given to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to us to suffer. So John's not telling us something new here in Revelation. He's reiterating something true. That with Jesus, in a relationship with Jesus, we should expect dif the difficulty of trials and tribulation, the difficulties of kingdom work, the difficulties of patient endurance. It was true then, and it's true now. Unfortunately, I think, we think that we're the exception to difficulty. Oh, oh, maybe we don't think about it very often, if at all. But that's our default. That's how we operate in life. We strive to ensure that we are the exception in all of Christendom across, across all time. We strive to ensure that we're the exception to difficulty by catering to our flesh instead of catering to the Spirit. We do. We pursue luxury instead of ministry. 
We live for ourselves instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sit back in compliance instead of standing up for Christ. Silent at that. So that when suffering does come our way, whether from the fallenness of this world or the acts of evil people or the demonic throng, we're surprised. We're devastated. We're crushed. Sometimes to the point of shaking our fist at God. How could you? But that doesn't make us exempt. That doesn't mean that we're going to see any less tribulation. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're with Jesus and He with you, difficulty is a part of life. Not that peace doesn't reign throughout all of the difficulty. Don't get me wrong. Not that joy doesn't abound in the midst of your hardships and your trials and your tribulations. Oh, no, no. There is the umbrella of peace. There's the sphere of peace that wraps all around it. There's the, the abundance of joy that is in and through it, for sure. But there's also difficulty. Trials and tribulations are unavoidable which means if we don't manage our expectations accordingly, we probably won't hold fast. We'll probably give up the ship and show that we were never sailors. With Jesus, expect difficulty. That's the first expectation here. The second comes from verses 12 to 17. You follow along. John continues, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. First he heard, then he saw. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze or polished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Let me just stop there just for a quick second. The descriptions that we find of not only Jesus, but situations throughout the book of Revelation, they are meant to be descriptions, not pictures. If you conjure up a picture of this, you're going to have something really, really bizarre by the time you get to the end of verse 16, somebody with a double-edged sword coming out of their mouth. It's obviously meant to be symbolic, as is most of the other parts of the description up to that point. Meant to be a description, not a picture. Verse 17, here's the point. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. There it is. I fell at his feet as though dead. With Jesus, expect to be floored. With Jesus, expect to be floored, to be overwhelmed. 
And once again, not just later when he returns, but right now, every time you get up in the morning and his mercies are new every morning. Expect to be floored. You might even want to start on the floor, on your knees. Expect to be overwhelmed. Expect to be amazed. Expect to be awestruck by our living Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. We have to do, expect that just like John was floored in verse 17, literally floored in his case, because that's what infinite power does. Like that's what searing holiness does. That's what reverence leads to. Like if you're not floored by Jesus, at least metaphorically, loved one, you haven't encountered Jesus. Not up close. If you're not floored by Jesus, you're looking from afar and he's way too small. You're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. If you're not floored by Jesus, you haven't encountered him with the eyes of your heart. Up close and personal because he's that amazing. He's that incredible. He's that overwhelming. Just like John describes. Look at verse 12 again. I heard a voice and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. I'll come back to that later. And in the midst of the lampstands, here it is, one like a son of man. One like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The robe and sash probably symbolize his dignity and his authority. Just like many of the earthly authorities at that time in John's day would wear a long robe in the Roman Empire with a golden sash diagonal across their chest. Dignity and authority. And the phrase, one like a son of man, refers to his divine anointing as our Savior. His divine anointing, his divine chosenness, the hand of God chosenness on him, his divine anointing as our deliverer. Expect to be floored by his divine anointing. It comes from an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel that one, like a son of man, would come from God, be anointed by God, and rule over all for God. One like a son of man, book of Daniel. And so the son of man started as a description. A description. But during the intertestamental times, the times between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament with the advent of Jesus, His birth, during that time, Son of Man morphed into a title in addition to a description. It became a title. A title synonymous with the Messiah. Synonymous with the Christ, which is a translation in Greek, of the Hebrew, Messiah, which means anointed one. Anointed one. Someone chosen by divine anointing. And that someone we well know is Jesus. Not just because he fits the description here in Revelation chapter 1 and in Daniel chapter 7, but because Son of Man is the most common title that Jesus used of himself in the Gospels. Referred to himself over and over again as the Son of Man. Intentionally so, trying to get through to them that he was indeed the anointed one of God, the Messiah who was prophesied of old. 
So when John quotes Daniel 7 here in Revelation 1, when he quotes Daniel 7 using one like a son of man, he's referring to Jesus as our Messiah, as our anointed one, chosen and empowered to save our souls, build his kingdom, build his church, and intercede for us as we speak. He's the one. No wonder John was floored. I hope that gives you just a little bit of a taste of what John experienced and a little bit of a foretaste of glory divine that we're going to experience. I mean, John was face to face with the exalted Christ. Plus, his insight was piercing. Expect to be floored by his piercing insight. That's the second reason that John was floored and that we ought to be as well. Look at verse 14 again. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, probably referring to his purity and wisdom. Just like we often associate you know, white hair and, and, and those who go before us and elderly, like we associate that with wisdom. Same here. As well as purity, snow. And his eyes, second part of verse 14, were like a flame of fire. It makes me think of the you know, hero movies that we have that crop up every now and then where one of them inevitably has this ability with kind of like flaming type eyes to, to see through things or destroy things or, or break down walls or whatever it is. But they can't even come close to what Jesus can do with his piercing insight. Because Jesus in his piercing insight sees past all of our facades into the depths of our being. He sees through to the innermost sanctum of our thoughts with his piercing insight, his eyes like flame of fire, past our facades and into our souls. He sees it all and he knows it all, doesn't he? Good and bad. Praise God for his mercy. And he not only sees it, but he acts accordingly with perfect wisdom, perfect omniscience, knowing the end from the beginning. He sees to our inner souls, knows exactly what we need at exactly the right time and exactly the right way, and he acts on that in ways that are so much higher than ours, we can't even understand it. Can't even fathom it. Are you floored by that? I'm floored by that. Floored by the fact that he knows what I need before I do. He knows my sin more than I do. And he knows my motives better than I do. It's piercing, piercing, perfect insight. We should not only expect to be floored by it, we should be floored by it now. Next is his glorious power. Expect to be floored with Jesus by his glorious power. Verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, probably indicating both power and stability. That's what they did in those days. They would heat metal up in order to solidify it. It would melt it and then solidify it even more, and then they would polish it up. Stability and firmness and power. And his voice on top of that that symbolism of power in his voice was like the roar 
of many waters, full of power and authority itself. If you've ever been to Niagara, anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? And did you, did you get to go on the boat ride? Like it, yeah, there's, it's so cool. You know, they give you the rain ponchos, and like, what, what do I need a rain poncho? I'm so cool, I don't need a rain poncho, I'm too cool for that. So I found out that I'm so glad that I actually took it. They forced it on me, bless them. But we're out on this boat, and, and you can only get within a couple of hundred feet. I don't know exactly what the hundred, or how many hundreds, but you can only get so close to it by law. But it's close enough that the pouring of the volume of water coming over the falls and the distance that it falls and the crash that it makes when it hits the water and the rocks below, it, it has such a rumbling sound that it makes your whole body just vibrate. You can feel the thunder of the many waters. The, the thought occurred to me during worship that you've got that displayed for just my message today. Appreciate that. Just for this text. God is sovereign. It's like the time in college when I stood 75 yards from a Harrier jet taking off. Remember Harrier jets? They were those uh, British-made jets that the thrusters swiveled and so they could lift straight off the deck of an aircraft carrier. In this case, it was uh, a runway. I snuck out onto the flight line. Shouldn't have been there. Lord, forgive me. But it was awesome. Always oh, awesome. And here we were standing there, and this thing was lifting off, and the thrust from the thrusters literally vibrated our chest so much so that my buddy pulled his T-shirt tight across his chest, and you know like those subwoofers that you, you see every now and then, the speaker literally vibrates, or you hear it in, uh, in, a, in a car that pulls up next to you, on the, you know, at the stoplight? Like his, his T-shirt was vibrating with the roar of the thrust of the jet. And it commanded the attention of every single person within earshot or eyeshot. And nobody could take their eyes off of it. Nobody wanted to take their eyes off of it. It was such glorious power. So too with Jesus someday. His voice, like the roar of many waters... And for me, at least, the thunder of many jets. He's that powerful. From his feet to his voice. And, and then there's his right hand. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I'll come back to that as well, to the stars. But, but for now, his grasp of them is a, another symbol of his sovereignty and control and power in and of itself. He held them. He held them. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he heard this loud voice, John did, and he saw this sword here, this double-edged sword symbolizing divine judgment. And so in one sense, the voice of Jesus powerfully commands our attention so that we can't take our eyes off, we don't want to take our eyes off of him. And in another sense, his voice powerfully defeats his enemies. Two-edged sword, that's the idea. Sharper than a two-edged sword. Jesus created the world by speaking. Jesus rules the world by speaking. And Jesus one day is going to judge and destroy the world by speaking. Can you say power? He's that powerful. Creates, rules, 
as Lord of our lives through the word that he's already spoken, and one day he will destroy it all and make all things new once again by the word of his power, by the power of his word. You know that old worship song, I Can Only Imagine? Last I checked, it was still near the top of the charts of all-time most played worship songs. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will Will I sing hallelujah? I'll be able to speak it all. We don't have to imagine. Because the word tells us what's going to go on. And it's probably all the above. It's probably all the above on repeat, over and over. Whatever our heart feels in that moment, going from hallelujah to silence to kneeling to standing to prostrate on the floor and then up again. I used to hate burpees when we were in football. Down and up, down and up, down and up. I'm going to love it someday in heaven. I'm going to have a glorified body that never gets tired. Apostle John was on the floor, and I think that's probably where we're going to start because he had already walked and talked with Jesus for three years. It's going to be our first sighting. And I'm pretty sure our eyes are going to behold his anointing like never before. I'm pretty sure our souls are going to feel his insight like never before. And in that moment, there's not going to be any remorse or any shame or anything of, of the sort. There's not going to be any guilt because there's not going to be any sin. Pretty sure that our hearts are going to experience His power and our face, His glory from His face. And one of the most beautiful things of all of that is that to some measure we get to experience every last bit of it right now. Every time we come into worship, every time we sing in the car, every time we get together in the name of Jesus for any purpose, every time we pray, every time we read the Bible, every time He leads us, like we can imagine, we can, because His power and His glory and His insight and His anointing are just as true now as they are going to be then. And we not only ought to expect it, we ought to anticipate it. And when we do, expect to be floored in the best sense of the word. And then finally, from verses 17 to 20, with Jesus, expect peace. 
With Jesus, expect difficulty. With Jesus, expect to be floored. And with Jesus, expect peace. You follow along when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Yes, there's difficulty in walking with Jesus, but there's also peace. There's also an unexplainable sense of rest. There's also a supernatural contentment and confidence in walking with Jesus. And I'm not talking about the self-confidence thing. I'm talking about a quiet, rock-solid confidence in God. I'm talking about Him as our everlasting rock and on whom we lean and will never, ever fail us. Quiet confidence, supernatural contentment, a rest that beats all in the strength that he provides and the protection that he gives. John says in verse 17, he laid his right hand on me and saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Fear not, as in be at peace, be at rest. I'm right here, hand on your shoulder, no more than arm's length, with you, and always will be. Like, never underestimate that. Right now in your life with Christ, in Christ, never underestimate the touch of Jesus, the touch of His Spirit on your soul, His hand on your life, His presence in your heart, always there and always comforting, always assuring, and always peaceful. Never underestimate it. But that's not the only reason to expect peace. There are three more in these verses. First, because He's firmly in control. Expect peace because God's hand is on your life as a child of God, saved by grace through faith, repentance of your sin. There's peace because of that, and there's peace because he's firmly in control, indicated by the phrase, I am the first and the last. Do you see it there in the second part of verse 17? I am the first and the last. In other words, I'm the one who's above all and over all, and I'm the one who started it all and ends it all and is in control of it all. Above all, over it all, started it all, I'm going to end it all, and I'm in control of it all everywhere in between. That's the idea of this phrase, I am the first and the last. It's an expression of sovereignty that should dispel your fear and bring you peace in the worst moments of your life, but it will only do so if you believe it and rest in it. Only do so if you recall it and lean on it. Peace. His sovereignty brings it, as does the fact that he's alive. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. How good is that? I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am alive, present tense, will be alive forevermore. If that doesn't bring you peace, I don't have much for you. He's alive and always will be, which means that his control will never wane and never lapse. Never diminish one little bit. Never gap here and there like he was busy with something else or somebody else. I will never leave you or forsake you. Peace. Second, we should expect peace with Jesus because he constantly holds us. Oh, no, no. Before we get there, you can go ahead and write it down. I missed the second part of verse 18. I don't want to miss this. It's so important. Jesus brings peace and control because he's even in control of death itself. Look at the last part of verse 18. I have the keys, he says, of death and Haiti, the realm of the dead. The realm of the dead, death and Hades. Meaning, when he says, I have the keys to them, it means that he's sovereign over who dies, who doesn't, and when. Numbering our days before we're ever born. Securing our future the moment we believe and repent. So, once again, with Jesus, we can expect peace because he's firmly in control of every last aspect of our life, including our death and the future beyond it. And then second, we can expect peace because he constantly holds us. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, a reference to verse 16. As for the mystery of that and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, man, Micah's job and my job would be a lot easier if every time a writer of the Bible referred to something that was a little bit cryptic, they, give a, they gave an explanation right after it just like this. Oh, how I wish sometimes. But I think the Lord knew that, and this is true of you as well, that to the extent that we have to wrestle with the Scriptures, to the extent that we have to labor to understand them, is the extent to which they will penetrate our hearts and souls most and be lived out in our lives. Amen? But here He didn't leave it to us. And we praise God for it. He says, The seven golden lampstands, and the uh, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus offers peace because he holds us. He holds us. That's the idea of stars or angels. Most likely stars referring to the pastors of churches. You see, John had to write to these churches. He was writing under duress he knew that the churches were being persecuted. You know, the seven churches in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. He knew that they were under persecution just like he was under persecution. And so he had to write to them in such a way that it both concealed what he was saying and revealed what he was saying. Because if he wrote to them in just a totally open sort of way, it would not only put himself at risk, and his life probably would have been snuffed out sooner, but it would have put the churches at risk as well. And so he writes in such a way all throughout the book of Revelation to both conceal what he's saying to those who don't have a clue, but reveal it to those who do. And so here, 
conveying to us, fortunately so, that the stars most likely refer to pastors of the churches, and Jesus holds them as a way of holding all of us, a way of preserving us, even in the midst of difficulty. And then last, there's peace with Jesus because he's always with us. He's always with us. Look at the last part of verse 20. The seven lampstands, Jesus says, are the seven churches. Referring to the golden lampstands that John mentioned in verse 13. They're the seven churches with Jesus in the midst of them. Oh, don't miss that. Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus in the midst of the churches. The lampstands represent the churches as the shining, as a shining testimony for Christ. And Jesus is right in the middle of them. Right in the middle of us. Right now. Emmanuel. It's not just for Christmas, God with us. It's all the time. It's an affirmation here of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered or 20 or 30 or 200 or 300 or 2,000 or 3,000 or whatever it is, where two or three even are gathered in my name. There am I among them. John was simply seeing what was already true of the churches of that day and what remains true of your church today. here, offering peace that goes well beyond our understanding, even though your life might be a mess and the world a dumpster fire. There's peace and we can expect it. Not without difficulty, not without awe, but peace nonetheless, surrounded by his glory and firm.